Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Christ Kingdom United and Expanding. He is assembling his kingdom, and it is united, and it is expanding. And we're going to see that from the text this morning, both directly in 2 Samuel, and then we'll see it in both Daniel and in the New Testament as well. We are in 2 Samuel 2 this morning. If you recall, we just finished preaching through 1 Samuel. And as we preach through 1 Samuel, one of the dominant themes we said was there. There are several, but a dominant theme in 1 Samuel is visible and invisible church. King Saul and King David are juxtaposed against each other. King David is a man after God's own heart. They both outwardly look pretty good. And they both struggle in 1 Samuel. But we see repentance unto life constantly demonstrated in the life of David, both in 1 Samuel and then again Here in 2 Samuel, we see a genuine love for God, including when things are going very different than he would want. Uh, An earnest desire that God's glory be the focal point of his life. But that is not the case with King Saul. We see those two quite contrasted in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, you're going to see two dominant themes again. And the two themes in 2 Samuel are loyalty and treason. They run all through 2 Samuel. Loyalty and treason. Now you're going to see loyalty and treason in light of primarily King David. That is, people being loyal to him or people being treasonous to him. But it is a representative of Christ. And that is indeed the reality with us in the the kingdom of Christ. It's not a loosely held organization of volunteers, but a kingdom with a king and a constitution and with officers with authority. And so we see this theme of loyalty and treason as being dominant themes in this book, and we want to look for them. When I was a child, now things have changed. They've decided that children are more sensitive now, apparently. But when I was a child in public school, they taught us in elementary school that there are five capital crimes. We learned that in elementary school. The five capital crimes in North Carolina are murder, arson, Rape, kidnapping, and treason. Those are five, the only five crimes for which you could be put to death. You can be in prison for a lot of things, but you can only be put to death for those five things. Treason. I remember as a child learning about treason in elementary school. It caught my attention. The, the others I understood to some degree, it seemed like, but treason was a capital punishment. 
What a remarkable thing when we come to the scriptures and we see the reality of God himself being so faithful and loyal. And we see the very imago dei that we are called to be like him. And when the, listen, when the father hears from the son, if there's any other way, can we do this some other way? And the father makes the decision, no, this is the way. This is the highest and best way. The son of glory bows his head and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It is the most beautiful demonstration of loyalty in the history of the universe. Loyalty and treason are dominant themes in this book. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we look at 2 Samuel this morning? 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses. The first 11 verses, excuse me. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household. And they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old. When he became king over Israel, he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Will you pray with me, please? God, we do praise you for this, your holy word, your living, active, eternal word, where we understand that it is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, we ask that you would help us now. In your mercy, God, that you would not allow us to drift through the next several minutes and then walk out of here without being able to comprehend more of your glory, delighting more in the gospel in person, 
of Christ and earnestly desiring, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to live big and bigger in us. God, we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Chapter 1 gives us the background for this. We looked at that last week, and we won't look at it again this morning, except to simply review that, if you recall, in that chapter, uh, a man comes to him, to King David, thinking he's bearing good news of how he has uh, given the final death blow to King Saul. But he's brought the crown to David. And he's certainly expecting, at the very least, favor to some limited extent, regardless of anything beyond that. He thinks he's done a good thing. But David has such a higher view of loyalty and treason that when he hears that this man did the final death blow to an anointed king over Israel, he has him executed on the spot. And we begin to see a little bit of the theme being established here. One of the things I've reminded you of often, I cannot remind you often enough, is that I learned from Francis Chan as he's talking about on that video, Isaiah 55, as the heavens are above the earth, so higher are my thoughts above your thoughts, declares the Lord, and my ways above your ways. Most of us would not have thought to execute the man who came with the crown, saying he had a death blow already. I could see he was going to die. And I just finished him off. And here's the crown. It's not like he was caught running with the crown and then came up with an explanation as to how he came up with it. He, came, he comes right to David with the crown. And David has a much higher view of loyalty and of treason. And God has a higher view than that. And so we get a bit of an understanding of what it means to come and to cry out to God that he would indeed come by his Holy Spirit and write his law on our hearts. Chapter 2 begins, Then it became afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And we see this idea of praying without ceasing. David is earnestly desiring that every move he makes be led of the Lord. Oh, how clear that is in Scripture that we're to do that. And as we plead with God in every situation, we can have such great confidence that even though difficulties will arise, and they're going to arise regardless of where you are in your life, but the more you've prayed about each one of those areas of direction in your life, then as those difficulties arise, you can come back to God in devotion and say, Lord, I, I ask you to open and close doors. I ask you to lead me. I want your glory. And as you're praying the first time to plead with God, God, what I want is what you want. And here David is, is wondering, is this the time? Do I, do I now move forward? King Saul is dead. He doesn't just assume that because King Saul is dead, that now he needs to go ahead and establish his kingdom. He has been anointed king of Israel for quite some time. But God answers him favorably, and then he asked further, I love this, and the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go? The idea of praying specifically. He's really asking God, I need specific leading at this time. And God graciously answers him and tells him exactly where to go. And so he does. We ourselves need to be devoted to that understanding and practice of praying without ceasing uh, for ourselves and for others and for the kingdom of God. Verse 2 says, So David went up with his two wives. And that should catch us already. We already knew he had two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. But this is just the beginning. He goes up with his two wives, 
David is going to have 11 wives named before he ever meets Bathsheba. He's going to have 11 wives and concubines before he ever meets Bathsheba. And the God of the universe anticipated this. And he wrote through Moses that when you have a king, don't let him multiply wives. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses anticipates they're going to have a king. And he says, don't let him multiply wives. It won't end well. And David starts the process here. And we see the reality of moving away from the revealed will of God in this process. There is a mirage of satisfaction that as David acquires more and more wives, he thinks that's going to be better. The next one will be better or something of that nature. It's a mirage of satisfaction. And yet, having said that, we don't want to take away from the beauty of marriage itself. God himself is the one who says it's not good for man to be alone. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. He doesn't say he who finds 11 wives finds a good thing. But he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so we want to glory in God. Our tendency is to take the truths of God and run rampant with them, whether they be in obedience or disobedience. To take the truths and glory of God and then press them to some extreme in which they're no longer true. And that's what we see taking place there already. Verse 3, And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his own household. So there's a lot of them with families and everything. And they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. He's already been, this is almost like a coronation in a sense. He's already been anointed, but now it's a much more public affair, a much more public affair than when he was at his father's house with the prophet Samuel, you recall. And so everyone now clearly in this region recognizes him and acknowledges him to be king. And he begins to step forward in that regard. It is a beautiful thing that we see. But immediately upon becoming king, it tells us that David was told about the loyalty of the men of Jabesh Gilead. The loyalty, which we saw earlier, they are the ones who actually go and take the body down of King Saul and bury it appropriately, it having had been nailed to the wall by the Philistines. So he learns that they have been loyal. It says, they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord. And so he, he really wants to bless them in every way. Verse 6, Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead. Part of what he's doing here, please hear this, part of what he's doing here is they've been loyal, they've shown honor to a man that tried to kill King David on numerous occasions. And they might be thinking, now that David is king, he would want to come and deal with us in some way. And it's quite the opposite. Because David understands that only by God could Saul be king. And only by God could Saul continue to be king. And so when he hears of the men of Jabesh Gilead, he says, wow, amen, that's wonderful. They were so loyal to their king. And so he puts them at ease. And he says to them, uh, now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. You have nothing to fear from me, is what he's saying. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so he's simply saying, we're, we're going to get along fine. Don't, don't think that your loyalty to the previous king is any 
treason against me. It's not. And so we see this beautiful establishing here of these attributes. You know, when we think of attributes, sometimes it's important to unpack them. Sometimes we do think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things are things that we want to be praying about and pleading with God to do in our lives. I've mentioned to many of you before, particularly on Sunday evening, that historically in Western Europe, the idea of a man was considered to be four large categories, and that's prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Now, those are large general categories with subcategories under them. Prudence and temperance, justice and fortitude. But I came across recently that uh, in the Marines, they have a, a statement of some characteristics that they think you should have. I'm not sure I can name them all, but I think they are judgment and justice, dependability, initiative, decisiveness, tact, integrity, encouragement, bearing, unselfishness, courage, knowledge, loyalty, and endurance. Those are great things to be thinking about. Those are great things to be thinking as you're praying and thinking about yourself. And God, I I, I want you to manifest these things in me. And great things to be praying for those around you. That we would see character in this sense. And David demonstrates this kind of depth in his character as to his relationship to God and his relationship to others. Another way of saying that is this. Sometimes we think of the phrase, what does the Lord require of you? Or what is the summation of the law? And we say, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yes, that's true. But some of those individual characteristics that I just said kind of help us see the day-to-day application of those things. The idea of tact and integrity and encouragement, the idea of bearing and unselfishness, dependability and decisiveness. Loyalty and endurance, they, they help us see what it is that God calls us for. And we're going to see those things in King David as the Holy Spirit manifests them in him. It is a beautiful thing to see this. And as we see this, we're going to see, even in this chapter, chapter 2, that there begins to be great division. Even though King David is clearly the king uh, and has been anointed. But then look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, Abner is nothing like Samuel. He's nothing like Samuel. But he's been the commander of the army, and he's pretty sure he won't have a big position in David's army. And so he quickly grabs the nearest relative to to Saul, one of his remaining, his only remaining son at this point. His other sons died with him in battle, but Ishbosheth is a son. Ishbosheth means, in Hebrew, it means man of shame. Uh, in some of the earlier manuscripts, his name is Ishbaal, man of Baal, which is an odd name for sure, as if he weren't even a worshiper of the Lord. It's not really clear, but Ishbosheth is man of shame. The son of Saul brought him over to Mahanaim, and Mahanaim is a Hebrew word that means two camps. And he brings him over to two camps, and we see kind of a theme here for Second Samuel of the two camps of those who are loyal and those who are not. But nonetheless, uh, Abner makes him king over the most of the northern tribes. And it says in verse 10 that he was 40 years old when he became king. And he only reigns for two years. And then he meets a 
he's executed by some men who are not loyal to him. And we'll see that in the chapters coming up. But verses 12 through the end, I'm not going to read them right now. And certainly not, I'm not going to read all of them. But verses 12 to the end then began to describe the war that breaks out. A war breaks out. A turmoil and skirmish after skirmish breaks out between those who are loyal to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and those who are loyal to David, anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel. And we begin to see that assembling of the people of God on David's side. And as we read through the next couple of chapters, we'll see that David's army is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the ones loyal to the other side are getting fewer and fewer. And so we see that picture of the idea of establishment. Uh, Verse 17 says this, That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so then the rest of that chapter goes on and describes that there's yet another meeting between them. That's after the first meeting. But then one of them cries out to the other one. Abner cries out to the other one, Joab. Those are the two leaders. And he says, let's not continue to kill each other. Let's have a truce. 300 and some men have already died, but they agree to a truce. It's just a temporal truce. And we see temporal truces in the world all the time. And it can look like a real peace, but everybody knows it really probably isn't, and it's not here. And so 26 to 28 in this chapter, it says, Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it would be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? And so they reach an agreement that they're not going to fight each other anymore at this point. But it's a temporal agreement because the reality is the two forces are looking for two different things. Abner is trying to hold on to his role as commander-in-chief and Ishbosheth is trying to hold on to a crown that God has given to David and neither of them will stand. It will not work when we try to do something that God himself has openly said This is not my will, whether it be in the commands of God or by the providence of God. Well, this isn't the only place in the scriptures that this kind of thing is set forth. Turning your Bible to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, you recognize as you're turning there, is the kingdom parables. Matthew 13 are the eight kingdom parables in which the Lord Christ says, kingdom of God is like. The eight kingdom parables of Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Beginning in verse 24, he compares it to tares and wheat. And I mentioned the idea of loyalty and treason. And that's what really this is about again, this theme that goes all through Scripture. Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And you see how Abner is trying to sow discord immediately upon hearing that David is now being established as the king. Abner begins to sow discord. An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. David is going to allow those on the other side to come to their senses and come over to him. He doesn't want to go in and destroy all of the men on the other side. 
He's going to give them a period of time to come to their senses and, and realize who he is and come, uh, much like Christ himself in his bearing and patience with us. Verse 30, Allow both to go together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. And so we see this reality that Christ says, as he's talking about the kingdom of God, that a day is coming. Right now there is turmoil, even in the visible church. There is turmoil between the true church and the, in, and the visible church, the invisible and the visible church. There is turmoil, just like there is between the um, ones who are following Abner and the ones who are following King David. But there is a day coming in which there will be a clarification There is a day coming in which there will no longer be this turmoil. And there won't even be just a temporal truce that looks like peace, but really isn't peace. But rather, he says here that there will be a day in which it'll be a final resolution. Look at verse 30 again. We're in Matthew 13. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up those in regard to treason, but gather the wheat, the loyal, into my barn. And we see this theme all through Scripture included reference in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters to the seven churches. Well, this isn't the only place that we see this as well. Turn in your Bibles even to Daniel, back up a little bit to the left, not far, Daniel chapter 2. And this is the dream, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. This is, in a sense, almost where Nebuchadnezzar gets the idea for the golden statue he's going to make in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, he has a dream about a golden image, or at least the head is gold. You remember that? He has this dream, and the head is gold, and the chest is silver, and the belly and thighs are bronze, and the legs and feet are iron, and then iron and clay. And this is the big thing. But he doesn't know what it is. But Nebuchadnezzar does something very, very smart. He says to his men, you must tell me the dream, his wise men, you must tell me the dream first and then give me the interpretation because he understands that they might make something up if he tells them the dream. But if they can tell him the dream and he hasn't told it to them, then he can say, well, if you also know the dream, then I have reason to believe your interpretation." What a wonderful demonstration of reason here by the wise Nebuchadnezzar. Well, look at verse 31. We're in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31. We pick up. This is Daniel now addressing the king. Daniel, who is a servant in this kingdom. He is in Babylon. Not where he, and he grew up in Israel, very likely in Jerusalem. He's a servant here, and yet he's so faithful in this situation, understanding the God of the universe has brought him here and put this pagan king over him. Verse 31, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. 
and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. He's talking about all the nations of the earth. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone is the kingdom of Christ. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will be another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze. The second kingdom is the Medes and Persians. The bronze kingdom is Greece, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, Rome, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. And then he talks about the rock that comes and destroys the whole thing. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the church. He will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. And so we see this wonderful demonstration here again of God is going to establish uh, these wonderful, uh, phenomenal, united kingdoms, and yet each of them will become less glorious than the one before it, and ultimately, in the time of the ruling Iron Kingdom, this stone will come and it will grow and take up the whole world. And it is the church, it's the kingdom of God. We see that. We see the reality today that the church has had this phenomenal impact around the world. There really is hardly a corner that one could say that the influence of the gospel and of the benefits and blessings of the gospel haven't been, and we see them everywhere around the globe today. Well, not only are there these mixed kingdoms and and conflict in nations as well as in Israel, but this conflict is in us. These two camps are in us. That Mahanaim idea is Romans 7. Every one of us recognizes it. Every one of us recognizes that a new king has come. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, like King David, has come to rule and to reign But there is still an Abner in our hearts. There is still the old man who does not want to surrender and receive the new king. The new man very much wants to receive the Holy Spirit and the reign of Christ, but the old man is not dead. And so we see turmoil 
and we see temporal truces, and then we see more, more turmoil. And yet the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God is slowly being established and advancing. We can see advances in grace in our lives, and we are told that a day is coming. We are told that a day is coming in which the old men will be utterly defeated and destroyed. And when he appears, we'll be like him. And we'll be delivered from all of that foolishness and rebellion and ignorance and self-centeredness. And we will delight in joining in with God in God's most right God-centeredness. There will be a time in which the kingdom is united around David. And there will be a time in which those who are in Christ will be united fully and without distraction around Christ. Look at your bulletin on the last page, if you will, please. John Newton writes about this. He understands this. I want you to know, I hear people ask me from time to time about the ongoing struggle within them. And I very often say to them, if you are genuinely vexed over the ongoing struggle within you, it's a generally positive sign that indeed the Holy Spirit dwells in you. I greatly grieve over people who don't know about that vexation, that ongoing struggle within them. They see that they want to do the will of God, and yet they don't see it happening as consistently, as gloriously, as fully as they would like to see, and as the Scriptures set forth. John Newton, who writes, preaches so beautifully, and is the one that wrote so many hymns for his congregation together with William Cooper, writes this, Our most enlarged ideas of our future glory are faint and imperfect. He wants to encourage the people that you see that conflict going on in your life. You see that conflict going on in the visible church. When John Newton is preaching in England, he is an independent. And to be an independent means you cannot hold office. To be an independent means you're not respected in any of the communities in regard to the English culture and civilization. Everybody in society is Church of England. And if you want to be anything in society, you're Church of England. If you're an independent, you're a lunatic fringe. Now, we have such a high view of John Newton, we can hardly conceive of that. John Newton is lunatic fringe in his day. He is not held in high regard by the Church of England in his day and by society. But he understands a day is coming. He understands that the, vis- the invisible church is the true church. And he understands that wrestling not only within the visible churches of God, but within each of us. Our most enlarged ideas of future glory are faint and imperfect. Who can describe or conceive the happiness of heaven? It will be as unlike as possible to this wilderness of sin and sorrow where we are now confined. Here on earth we are in a warfare, but then we shall enter into perfect rest. We now cry out, oh, that I had wings like a dove, as does King David. For then I would fly, flee away and be at rest. Heaven will be a rest from all sin. No unclean thing shall ever defile or disturb us forever. We shall be free from all indwelling sin. This alone would be worth dying for. Indwelling sin is a burden under which all the redeemed must groan while they sojourn in the body. All those who are most spiritual, listen to this carefully. All those who are most spiritual are most deeply affected with shame, humiliation, and grief on account of their sins because they have the clearest views of the holiness of God, of the spirituality of His law, 
of the love of Christ and of the deceitfulness of their own hearts. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, though perhaps in grace and talents, in zeal and usefulness, was distinguished above all saints, accounted himself the chief of sinners, less than the least of all saints, and cried out under the disparity he felt between what he actually was and what he desired to be. O wretched man that I am, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? But we shall not carry this burden of sin beyond the grave. The hour of death shall free us from our inbred enemies. The inseparable attendance of this frail, perishing nature, which now trouble us, and we shall see them no more forever. Heaven will also be a rest from all our outward afflictions, which though necessary and under the influence of divine grace, are profitable, yet they are grievous to bear. Hear this. If the best way for King David and for Israel would be that David would become king immediately upon the death of Saul and everybody would be united behind that with one great celebration, that's how it would have happened. But the God of the universe knew better. The God of the universe knew better for the people and for King David, that they might go through a seven-year extended period of challenge, of turmoil, before there's finally unification in the kingdom with all twelve tribes acknowledging David to be king. And he is a very good king. He's a very good king. Heaven will also be a rest from all outward afflictions, which though necessary and under the influence of divine grace are profitable, yet they're so grievous to bear. But in heaven, they will no more be necessary. Where there is no sin, there shall be no sorrow. Then God will remove all of their sorrows, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. For the old world and its evils are gone forever. Heaven will also be a rest from Satan's temptations. How busy is this adversary of God and man? What various arts and schemes he employs? He's been a warrior from his youth. What surprising force, what constant assiduity does he employ to ensnare, distress, and terrify those who by grace have escaped from his servitude? He says, like Pharaoh of old, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will destroy. He follows them to the last stage of life. But he can follow them no farther. The moment of their departure out of the body shall place them beyond his reach forever. Heaven will also be a rest from unsatisfied desires. Here on earth, the more we drink, the more we thirst. But in heaven, our highest wishes shall be crowned and exceeded. We shall rest in full communion with him whom we love and shall no more complain of interruptions and imperfections and a careless heart. Here on earth we obtain a little glimpse of his presence when he brings us into his banqueting house and spreads his banner of love over us. Oh, and how gladly would we remain in such a desirable frame. How unwilling are we to come down from the mount, but these pleasing and holy seasons are quickly ended and often give place to some sudden, unexpected trial, 
What does he mean? He means you can have a glorious Lord's Day or a season in your life of great devotion and then great chaos from the world and from the devil and from the curse break out. But when we shall see Jesus as he is, we shall be fully transformed into his image and be perfectly like him. Yes, dear friends, we are already God's children and we can't even imagine what we will be like when Christ returns. But we do know that when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. What is an application from all of this as we contemplate the two Kingdoms warring within each other and turmoil and temporal truces. Well, we think of Psalm 51 in regard to what's going on in our own hearts first, and that's where we start. Psalm 51 is that beautiful. There are, there are several others, but Psalm 51 is particularly a psalm of transparency, of contrition, of honesty before God. And as we cry out to him, asking God to help us, to cause us to walk in his way, to create in us a clean heart, O oh God. We have a biblical hope that the Holy Spirit is doing just that. The Holy Spirit is doing just that now, and that we will be once and for all delivered from ourselves and from sin. Gabriel is the angel that announces the birth of Christ to Mary. Gabriel is an interesting name. It doesn't mean I am God's warrior. That might make sense if it did, but it doesn't. Gabriel, this great angel, his name doesn't mean I am God's warrior. Gabriel means God is my warrior. God is my warrior. And he announces to Mary. He announces to Mary. Behold, you will conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior Salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. John Newton was preaching on 1 Corinthians 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you do remind us again and again that you are all together outside of time. And we, being immersed in it, cannot genuinely grasp eternity. And yet, God, we not only have eternity looming before us, but as many as are in Christ we have more than peace with you, our Father. We have this final reconciling of the Imago Dei in us. 
in which love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control are in every direction. Without compromise, with prudence and temperance, and justice and fortitude, with dependability and decisiveness, with justice and judgment, with integrity, with courage and knowledge and loyalty and endurance. God, how we long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen all who are in Christ Jesus, that as we see these two natures wrestling within us, as the two children wrestling in Rebecca, God, that we would understand that it won't always be this way. That we would come to understand the glory of Christ's kingdom and of his rule, of his reign. And while we delight in him ruling over the nations, we particularly delight in our Lord Christ ruling over us. Gladden our souls then, Heavenly Father, and refresh us in the race set before us Bless us with contrition and transparency and fill us with gospel mercy in every direction that we may indeed go forward walking and leaping and praising your holy name, fixing our eyes on Jesus and with our feet in the pilgrim's path to the celestial city. To your glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.